Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. And today we come to the end of our series on the life of David. And if you've been here throughout this series and and read the passages of scripture we focused on in the sermon, you will have seen that for the most part, David comes out as the hero in most of these stories. It's not that David is faultless. We've seen plenty of failures uh, throughout his story. But on the whole, at least in the stories we've looked at on Sunday mornings, uh, David has come out uh, ahead. Uh, we could say that generally his trajectory has been up and to the right, even if it's not just been a straight line the entire way. We saw that uh, he was anointed to be king because he was a man after God's own heart. We saw him stand up to the giant Goliath because he trusted in God. We saw that he was delivered from the schemes of King Saul because of his friendship with Jonathan. We saw his trust in God even when Saul was trying to take his life. We saw David seek the glory of God in worship and receive blessings from that as a result. Things have gone well for David on the whole. But we all know that not every story ends in victory. If you can't imagine that this afternoon someone knocked on your door and said they wanted to make a movie about your life. And assuming you took them seriously and didn't assume they were pulling a prank on you and you actually sat down with them to talk about how the story of your life was going to be told, what actor was going to play you and what the arc of that story was going to be. My guess is you have stories, you might have stories in your mind right now that if, if there was a movie made about your life, you definitely want these stories included, the good, the good parts, the highlights of your story But if they kept digging and kept trying to flesh out this story, my guess is they would come across things that you would prefer remain concealed. Stories of failure, stories of being hurt, stories of you hurting others, stories that you would prefer to stay hidden. The passage of scripture we're going to look at today is one of those stories in the life of David. And if I'm being honest, it is not rated for all audiences, to put it lightly. If this was a story in your life, my guess is you would not tell it often. And yet, it's included in our Bible as a testimony to how God works through the parts of our story that we would prefer to hide. And when we turn the dark parts of our story over to God, we open ourselves up to experience his grace. And to see that in David's story, we have to first see his sin. We're going to pick up at 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 1 to 5. It says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. 
The first vehicle I owned was a 1992 Ford F-150, and it was a great truck. There are still days today where I think about how I wish I still had that truck until I think about how much it would cost to fill up both of its fuel tanks, and then I kind of get over it. But it was a good truck. And not too long after I had turned 16 and started driving, I was driving home one day, and the check engine light came on in that truck. And being a new driver, I was kind of concerned about this. So I got home. I, I told my dad about this. And it just so happened that a, a friend of my dad's was at my parents' house when, when I told him this. And I'll never forget his wise words of response. He's, my dad's friend said, well, I've got some black tape in, the, in my truck if you want to just cover that, that light up, and then you won't have to worry about it anymore. And I'm not saying that's the right advice in that situation, but if I'm being honest, most of the time in a warning light in a vehicle like that, that my response is something along those lines. Like, yeah, I know that probably means there's something wrong with the car, and yeah, I should probably have it seen about, but nothing's on fire right now. It's probably going to be okay at least for a little bit longer, but, but we all know that those check engine lights are telling us something. That things are not functioning as they should, and, and you need to be careful because if not, you're going to have major problems down the road. And we know that in our own lives as well, but those, those warning lights can go off and we don't even realize what they are showing us. Anger can be a warning light showing that things are not well in your soul. Uh, we can have headaches, we can have physical uh, symptoms that are showing that we are not taking care of ourselves as a warning light, that we are not uh, living as we were designed to live. And this story, the verses we just read, the narrator is giving us all sorts of warning lights on David's moral dashboard. And David ignores them all. The first one comes in verse 1. It says, it's time of the year for kings to go off to war, yet David remains in Jerusalem. It was common cultural practice that in the spring of the year, once you get your crops planted, once the rainy season's over and you can travel, that the armies would head out to uh, fight as they would normally do. That was the rhythm of every year. And yet, as that happens this year, David remains at home. Actually, throughout this entire story, David is going to sit in the palace while he sends other people every which way to do his bidding. And a warning light goes off. He gets up from bed one evening, he walks around on the roof of the palace, and this is a hot climate, so it's common to stay inside and rest throughout the afternoon, and apparently David's siesta has gone a little long because it's evening. He goes up on the roof to walk around and enjoy the cool breeze. And that might sound strange to us because we don't walk around on our roofs that much, at least I don't, not all of us do, and yet in the ancient world it was a common place to go up there have some privacy enjoy the evening breeze and while David is up there he sees a woman bathing on her roof and again that might sound strange to us but in a world without hot water heaters you put your water up there on the roof in your bathtub during the day the sun warms it up once evening comes you can enjoy a warm bath David takes notice of this and another warning light goes off David asks someone who this woman is. His messenger says to him that this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. As if to say, David, this is someone's wife, this is someone's daughter, what are you doing? 
Not only that, she's not just anyone's wife and daughter. Eliam and Uriah are two of David's mighty men. They are men that David knows well. They have stuck by him through thick and thin. And not only that, we learn from other passages that Bathsheba's grandfather is Ahithophel, one of David's most trusted advisors. David knows exactly who Bathsheba is, and every warning light on his dashboard is going off, and he doesn't care. He sends messengers to fetch Bathsheba, and he sleeps with her. And we might want to say that, well, Bathsheba shouldn't have been bathing on the roof, but that ignores cultural conventions. We might want to say, well, she should have refused, and that ignores the fact that David is the king with absolute power in his kingdom. We should have said she could have done something, but that's not really the point. David is responsible. He's the one with all the power. He's the one who knows the commands of God. He knows this is wrong. He just doesn't care. Bathsheba is a means to the end of his own fulfillment. But things get complicated when Bathsheba discovers she's pregnant. This can no longer be just one night while Bathsheba's husband is away. David now has to deal with what he has done. And we're told about that picking up at verse 6. It says, David sent this word to Joab, his general. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark And Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Uriah has been in battle, where David should have been. And so David invites him to come home for a few days to maybe establish some plausible deniability for what he has done. Uriah makes the 40-mile or so journey from the battlefield. He reports on how things are going. David says, you know, Uriah, it's too late for you to make the trip back tonight. How about you go home, enjoy some time with your wife, and then you can head back tomorrow. And he sends a gift basket along with the couple. But Uriah sleeps in the servant quarters of the palace. David finds out about this. He asks Uriah, why didn't you go home uh, last night? And Uriah responds, it would not be right for him to enjoy the comforts of home while the army of Israel and the Ark of the Covenant are living in tents. Or put another way, Uriah says, I don't think it would be right for me to live as you are currently living, David. So David tells him, well, why don't you stay a little longer? Why don't we have a feast while you're here? David plans to get Uriah intoxicated and then send him home. He might not even remember what happened. And yet Uriah again sleeps in the servant quarters. And so here on one hand you have David, the king of God's people, the man that's been called a man after God's own heart. He's already committed adultery. Now he's trying to cover that up. And now you have Uriah the Hittite, which means he he wasn't born into God's people. And he's not cooperating with David's schemes. Uriah is a better man drunk than David is sober. 
And without realizing it, his honor for God and his fellow soldiers is preventing David from covering up his wrongdoing. And so now David's plan A hasn't worked, plan B hasn't worked, and so David moves to plan C. We're going to read a portion of the next section of this story, first verses 14 to 17. It says, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. We're going to jump down to verse 25. All this gets reported back to David in the palace, and David tells the messenger who told him all this, well, to to give this message to Joab, don't, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Uriah has not been cooperative, so David drafts a letter instructing the general Joab to make sure Uriah dies in battle. He puts the royal seal on it, and he puts it in Uriah's hand and sends him back to the front lines. Joab gets the message, even if he doesn't understand why, and so he does what David wants. He puts Uriah in the fiercest fighting, and Uriah is killed. But if you noticed as we read the text, it's not just Uriah. Verse 17, I'm going to put that up on the screen again, says, Some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab intentionally takes a poor strategy in battle to ensure that Uriah loses his life for David's sake, which is bad enough on its own, but other men get caught in the crossfire. Innocent men lose their lives so David can cover his tracks. After the battle, Joab sends a messenger to the palace to tell David what happened. He tells the messenger that if David gets mad, just let him know Uriah is dead, and that should calm him down. So the messenger goes back, he describes the battle, and before David can get Uriah, Before David can get riled up, the messenger says, oh, and by the way, Uriah was killed. But David doesn't get angry, which is surprising. We didn't cover this passage on a Sunday morning, but if you've been following along in the reading plan we put together through the life of David to go along with this series, you will have read a couple weeks ago in 2 Samuel chapter 1 when King Saul dies. King Saul, the enemy of David who's been pursuing him, trying to take his life for years And David receives word that Saul dies and he weeps, he mourns, he writes a song in honor of Saul at his death and he makes all the people learn it so that they can sing it as well. And now the same guy gets word that one of his faithful and trusted soldiers has been killed in battle along with others and he essentially says, well, you know, that's that's the cost of doing business. This is David. This is the man that wrote Psalm 23, which begins by saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Now he seems to think that innocent life can be taken if it gets him what he wants. I think it's safe to say God's people are no longer being led by a man after God's own heart. You might remember all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 8 when the people first asked God to give them a king like the other nations. The prophet Samuel gives them this warning that it won't go well for them because he says time and time again, a king is going to take from you 
He's going to take your children and make them be his soldiers and his servants. He's going to take your wealth and as taxes. He's going to take whatever he wants from you for his own ends. And David was supposed to be the antidote to a king like that by being a man after God's own heart. But now, he's taking. He's taken another man's wife. He's taken innocent life to cover up the first action. And it probably shouldn't surprise us that this chapter ends by saying that what David has done displeased the Lord. And if David were a king over any other nation, the story might end right there. History is littered with stories of people abusing their power. But David's not the final authority in Israel. So at this point, we've had David's act, we've had the cover-up, and now we're going to have the exposure of his sin. Because up to this point in the story, David's been the one doing the sending. He sends for Bathsheba, he sends for Uriah, he sends instructions to Joab, but chapter 12 is going to begin by telling us that God sends the prophet Nathan to David. Picking up in 2 Samuel 12, it says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore... The sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Nathan tells this story of a rich man who exploits a poor man and it enrages David. How could someone be this selfish someone like this does not deserve to live David burns with anger the text says that's the same expression used in the passage of scripture we looked at last week to describe God's reaction when the ark of the covenant is approached inappropriately 
David is going to make sure justice is done. Things like this should not happen within his kingdom. And Nathan points the finger at David and says, David, that story's about you. David had been given so much, and now he is taking what is not his. Everything David had was a gift from God. God gave him the kingship. He gave him success. He gave him riches. He had plans to give him even more. If you remember 2 Samuel 7 that we looked at last week, God promised you're going to have a dynasty that comes out of your family line. You're going to have a descendant who will come and will reign forever. But that was not enough for David. Instead, he is taken. And now he's guilty of adultery and murder. But those just come out of the deeper problem of his pride. He's forgotten that God is in control. And so he's done as he pleases, taking another man's wife, taking innocent life to satisfy his own desires. And now God shows up to describe the consequences. And God does not take back the promises he's already made to David, but he says that now because of David's actions, they will come in a mixed bag. The sword will not depart from David's home. The violence and scheming David has used to get his way will now be the norm among his descendants because children imitate their parents, whether they intend to or not. About a year or so ago, my parents came up to visit us for the weekend, and when they got here, uh, the long car ride had made my dad's back really sore, and so he came into our house and said, I don't, my back hurts, I just got to lay down for a little bit. And so he went into our living room and laid down in the floor to stretch out, and I made fun of him because that's my duty as a son. And a week passes, exactly one week, the next Friday, I go to play pickleball with Travis Rieger. This, is, this whole story is Travis's fault. And I get home, and I stand up out of the car, and I think, wow, my back really hurts. And I walk into the house, and I said, man, Whit, I just, like, I don't, standing on the concrete, something happened to me. I got to lay down for a little bit. And I went, and I laid down in the living room and stretched my back out, and before Wit could say anything, it occurred to me that I was laying in the exact same spot, doing the exact same thing that my dad had been doing a week before and I had made fun of him for. We follow the examples that get set for us, whether they are good or bad. And David set an example that kings can take what they want, and that pattern's going to continue. But look at David's response in verse 13. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. You could make the case that this story is worse than anything Saul ever did as king, yet David is, not, is allowed to remain on the throne when Saul was not. And the reason why is because David knew how to repent. When Saul was confronted because of his wrongdoing, he had excuses to explain away what had happened. When David is confronted, he repents. And in the very same verse, Nathan pronounces, the Lord has taken away your sin. And that might sound unfair. At least as I read that, it sounds a little unfair to the families grieving the loss of their, their fathers, their husbands, because of David's selfishness. And it's not fair, because as Ken Wadham told me once, grace is never fair. None of us want to be treated as our sins deserve. We, we want other people to get what they deserve. We just usually don't want to get what we deserve. We don't want to be judged based on the stories that we have hiding in our closet. We want grace because we know we're not perfect. And we might not be guilty of what David is guilty of, but we need 
grace. And the grace of God that's available to David here in this verse because he repents before God is the same grace available to us when we repent before him as well. And yet consequences remain. Later in this chapter, as Nathan has already said, this child born to David and Bathsheba dies. This child lives for a week, and David mourns for that entire week. But when the child dies, he worships God. And he explains why in verses 22 and 23 to his servants. He says that while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David's looking towards the future. In spite of his sin, he knows there's more to this story than darkness. He will see this child again. And yet the ripple effects of his actions continue. In the next chapter, we are told that one of David's sons, Amnon, rapes his half-sister Tamar. And it is a horrible story, and yet David does nothing. We're told in 2 Samuel 13, 21, at the very end of the story, when King David heard all of this, he was furious. Good for David. But that's all he does. And the text doesn't explain why, and I'm not here to psychoanalyze someone who's been dead for thousands of years, but I have to think that at least part of the reason David doesn't get involved in that story is because he no longer has any moral high ground to stand on. Amnon's just doing what he's seen his dad do. I mean, what's David going to say to him? That members of the royal household don't do things like this? They don't treat women as if they're just objects of their own sexual pleasure? Is he going to tell Amnon that if you want to be king one day, you can't act like this? Actually, maybe you could make the case that Amnon's not as bad as David because at least Amnon didn't kill anyone in the process. And the ripple effects of David's sin continue. And since David doesn't do anything about that, one of his other sons, Absalom, gets involved. He murders his half-brother Amnon, and then he flees. And when Absalom flees, 2 Samuel 14, 37 says, David mourns many days, but that's it. Three years pass, and David does not see his son Absalom. Absalom eventually comes back to Jerusalem. David says that Absalom is not allowed to meet him face to face, and that division grows between father and son. Absalom begins scheming to try to take the throne, just as Nathan predicted in 2 Samuel chapter 12, to the point that Absalom launches a a coup, and David has to flee into the wilderness, as we've been reading about in our reading plan this week. And when that happens, we're told that one of the people that betrays David for Absalom is Ahithophel. David's advisor, who you might remember was Bathsheba's grandfather. And the ripple effects of David's actions continue. Overall, things work out well enough. David eventually returns to the throne, although Absalom dies in the process. He lives to old age, but his reign is far from what it seemed like it could have been at one point. Yet in the midst of these ripple effects, we still see grace. David and Bathsheba give birth to a second son. They name him Solomon. And when Solomon is born, we're told in 2 Samuel 12, verses 24 and 25, that the Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Jedidiah is a Hebrew name that means loved by the Lord. That's the name that God gives Solomon. We might hear that and think, seriously? 
like this child born to David and Bathsheba. God, you remember what happened, right? You remember why David and Bathsheba are even together to begin with, and God does not minimize sin, but even in the midst of all this brokenness, he looks at Solomon, he looks at this little boy born to David and Bathsheba, and he says, yeah, but I love that one. He is loved by me. And that sort of love is possible because of David's repentance. David could have dug his heels in, but instead he allowed God to work through him. And that didn't wipe away every problem, but it opened up space for God to work. And that is where there is hope for David's story and for ours. In the parts of our story that we hope never come to life, come to light, grace is stronger. God still shows up in our mess and proclaims his love over us. He still desires that we would repent so that we can be healed. And I don't know your entire story, but God does. And there might be parts of that story that you are keeping under wraps right now because you think if anyone finds out, it is going to ruin me. You might be hiding addictions in the darkness because the idea of bringing them into light would be too costly or there is some other lie you are believing about your sin that it is just for you to deal with and no one else's and you have to get yourself together before anything else. And if that's you, I'm asking you this morning to repent of your sin. I'm not asking you to do it because I need to know every last detail of your life. I'm not asking you because to do this because I want to make you feel guilty. I'm asking you to do it because it's the only way to find healing. I'm asking you to do it because I've sat with people who have said things out loud and have said, I've never said that to anyone. And I've seen the relief that comes when they let it go. I've seen the grace of God work in people who are willing to repent. And so I'm asking you to do that because even though it hurts to deal with our sin, life with God is waiting on the other side. God works when we repent. And that means our stories don't have to end with sin and shame. They can end with healing when we repent before God. A few years ago, I was given a, I guess you would call it a true crime book. And if I'm being honest, the details of the story are a little hazy, but it was essentially the story of two families. And the father of one family was abusive of his family to the point that his oldest son decided it was a good idea to try to murder his father. And it was discovered after the fact that the father of this second family had provided the, the murder weapon and that the boy's mother had helped motivate him to do this. So you have a mother and a son of one family and the father of a second family all sent to prison. As you can imagine, an episode like that casts generational shame across both of these families. The ripple effects of that go out for generations. And yet it's not just a story of brokenness. Because the father of that second family that went to prison, his name was Ben French. And Ben's oldest son, or youngest son, excuse me, that lived into adulthood was named Merle. And Merle had a son named Michael. And Michael had a son named Monty. There are generational effects stemming from our sin. And yet that does not have to be the end of the story. The hope of the gospel offers us healing and redemption. And that is all possible because of Jesus. As great as David was, he died. 
and yet his family tree led to the one who would conquer death forever. The Gospel of Matthew begins with Jesus' family tree, and Matthew 1.6 says that David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. The blood of David and Bathsheba ran through Jesus' veins. And the fact that Jesus came to give his life for us is why we can acknowledge the darkness of this story while also acknowledging that the story's not over. Because of David's confession, God was able to work through him and his descendants, and that led to Jesus, the one who has given up his life so that we could have life with God. Because he has died in our place, we can know that our story does not have to end with darkness. Because he went to the cross, we can confess sin, confident in his grace. So no matter who you are, no matter what skeletons are in your closet, come, bow your knee before Jesus, confess your sin and be healed. Repent so that God can work through you. Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning acknowledging our own sin, our own failure, the moments where we have rejected you and gone our own way. And yet, grateful for the fact that your mercy is greater. Greater than our sin, greater than our rebellion, greater than anything we could ever do, God. Your love for us, shown to your Son in Jesus, has been given to us so that we might have life with you. So God, as we wrestle with this dark story, this dark chapter from David's life, and think about our own stories, God, we ask that you would give us wisdom to know how to respond in light of your word as you always call us to do. God, if there's sin we need to confess, help us do it in a way that is, brings healing. If there are decisions that have to be made to follow you, recommit to following you, help us do that well so that we could have the life you created us to have so that we could be made right with you and walk with you all our days. Fill us with your spirit as we do that. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.